Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Um, sincerely, I'm very grateful for you. I, I know um, it can be a hard job. In fact, it can be an unappreciated job. I know this because this week I was researching the top 20 most popular holidays in North America. Number one is Christmas. Number two, can anybody guess? Mother's Day. Yeah, that's right. All right, you got it. That's fine. I'm fine with number three. No! Number 17 is Father's Day. <laughs> Arbor Day is ahead of Father's Day. Josh will pay somebody 20 bucks if they can tell him what Arbor Day is about. Anyway, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Dads are people who keep their pictures where they used to keep their money. And it can be an unappreciated job sometimes. And it's hard. The world gives us a lot of opportunities not to do it. But for all the dads who stick with it, who make a commitment to live a real life, not just life on screens or mediated with, you know, substance abuse or substance like alcohol, to check out constantly, thank you. I know it's hard, and I also know it's wonderful. In fact, this Tuesday night, for the men of our church, including the fathers, Anthony Walker is going to be here. Anthony is a preacher in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He also runs a very effective men's ministry, and he's going to have, uh, we're going to have a men's ministry evening um, with free food and fellowship and a time of encouragement, as in a time to give us courage, because our world is hurting. And here's hoping that... Us men can be the men we're called to be, the men God made us to be. You may feel overwhelmed, you may feel like you don't have what it takes, but God honors a man. The Holy Spirit gives us power when we decide to step up and take responsibility for loving and serving our family. Press into your relationship with God like never before because you are needed like never before and you have a calling. You are not better than women, but you are different than women. And you need to show up for them and the other people in your life. We need men who show up for the life they actually have. And one of the ways that you may do that is at your job. So we're in a series called God at Work. And let's start here. In 2001, the lead singer of Jane's Addiction, a band named Jane's Addiction, is a guy named... Uh, Perry Falwell, not to be confused with Jerry Falwell, that's a very different person. Uh, Perry Falwell helped, he, he flew to Africa with a Christian organization, even though that's not his particular faith tradition. He flew to Africa and helped to fund and negotiate the release of over 2,000 Sudanese slaves. He actually paid for that out of his own income and pocket. He, he did that to save the lives of all these people. Meanwhile, my parents did not allow me to listen to that music. And I was in college. And I tell you all this because when we talk about work, today specifically, I want to give us two bigger categories. The categories that we normally think of are of sin and grace. Because normally when people of faith talk about sin, we have reduced, we have a reduced imagination for it. And the same is true for grace. Now, I'm not trying to get into what kind of music you should listen to or not listen to. But what I do want you to see is that Perry Falwell was doing some really, really good work. And we can appreciate that 
as followers of Jesus, even though Perry Falwell did not do that as a follower of Jesus. And I start here because ever since I've been in ministry, I've had people come to my uh, come to me and tell me about it's so hard working in the office with you know people that don't share the same values that I share. People who use words that I wouldn't use or tell jokes that I wouldn't tell or make decisions that, you know, we consider immoral or whatever. And we say it a hundred different ways, but what we're really trying to say is it's just so hard working with sinners. This comes primarily from a pretty thin view of sin, which is, you know, if you, it's a behavior that you avoid, you know, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you're good. And so we avoid certain kinds of people. The problem with this is it's not a deep enough view of sin. Because have you ever noticed that when you don't do X, Y, and Z, if you're paying attention, if the grace of God gives you the ability to pay attention, you have a new problem. Because when you don't do X, Y, and Z, you start to feel pretty good about yourself. In fact, you start to be able to look down on other people who do it. And if God's grace gives you the awareness, you realize your new problem may even be a bigger problem than the old one. What Christian tradition has said for 2,000 years is the problem. Pride. You find yourself looking at the people who do those things, and you it's hard to admit this, but you actually are kind of like the Pharisee who looks at the publican and says, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like that. Because sin is more deceitful than we think it is. And, and the truth is, when people tell me, you know, it's so hard to work around sinners, I've worked in a church office for over 20 years. I also work with sinners. And they do too. If we're honest, we realize that our hearts are actually an idol factory. They're constantly producing things that we try to make the center of our life. Um, this is why some of the meanest people you know can be can call themselves Christian. It doesn't have to go with the territory, but it often does. Because if you can get God to uh, agree with your definition of sin, you will certainly be sinless. And it's possible to never get confronted with your own pride. Because if I'm the one that gets to define righteousness, then I'm certainly going to be righteous. Yeah, I may not be helping free slaves in the Sudan, but, you know, I don't watch rated R movies. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. One of the more interesting stories in the Bible is of this five-star general of the, the enemies of Israel, Syria. His name is Naaman, and he has recently... Um, taken over Israel. He led a successful conquest. He decimated Israel. He brought out the he killed a lot of people and then Naaman and the Syrians brought out the best and brightest and just people who they wanted to force to do indentured servitude, including someone who worked for Naaman. This guy has he has risen to the top of his profession, five-star general, and then he gets a death sentence. He finds out he has leprosy. And no amount of power can protect him from it. But one of those people that he brought back from Israel was a young servant girl from Israel. And for whatever reason, even though this guy is her enemy, the one that may have killed her family, maybe even her parents, she sees that he's dying. And this servant girl says to him, you know, there's no God like the God of Israel. And if you want to live... You should go talk to the prophet Elisha. 
And Elisha can help you do it. Now normally he wouldn't do anything. This is a, a territory he's just beat. What could that God do for him? He couldn't even save his own people from being defeated. But this is no longer normal for Naaman. Now, because we have all of the kids in the um, church with us for this uh, summer, instead of me reading you this story, we asked our student ministry to help make a video telling this story. So if you could, play that now. Good morning and welcome to PVCC News, where we don't report fake news, we report the good news. If you haven't noticed, over the past few years, people are catching the Holy Spirit. Young and old alike are lifting holy hands in worship to the Lord, and we can't get enough. The Living Out of Scripture has sparked an initiative among the young people of our church. That's right! The 1312 Initiative is a petition started by the young people of our church. Teens and TAP have come together, encouraging members to embrace the tradition from 2 Corinthians 13.12, which says, Greet each other with a holy kiss. The presentation from particularly the young men was said to be exuberant. If that practice catches on, Brother Bob better buy more breath mints. Tonight we have a special interview with Naaman, commander of the army of King Aram. Let's throw it over to our field reporter, Audrey. Thanks, Abby. Naaman, you have had an incredible experience with the prophet Elisha. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, a couple years back I had this pretty bad bout with leprosy and you know, I went all over our country to try to find somebody who could cure me, and nobody could help me out. You know, there were a couple people who were said they could, but they were going to charge me an arm and a leg. It's <laughs> a bad leprosy joke. You obviously look better. What did you do? Well, yeah, we had this servant girl who was working with us at the time, and she was from Israel, and she suggested that I go see this prophet um, of the Israelite God. So. I got permission from our king, and we packed up some silver and some gold and clothes and headed on over. Um, word is he was pretty nervous about us coming, something about me having leprosy and being a warlord or something to that extent. But he didn't want to see us, and so he just sent us straight on to Elisha. Well, we heard Elisha's advice was a bit controversial. What, what was that advice? Well, he didn't really give us any advice at all. Um, so, back in my country, I... I'm a pretty big deal. Um, but he didn't even come out to see us. He sent a servant to come out to see us. And the servant told me that I need to go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times. Just a disgusting, filthy, gross river. Yeah, you probably weren't happy about that. Not at all. You know, I was expecting something grand. You know, lightning bolts, a voice from the heavens, some, I don't know, something miraculous. And none of that happened. He just wanted me to go bathe into the dirty old river. So I got angry, packed up my stuff to leave. But then our servant gave us some pretty wise advice. And what was that? Well, she said that if the prophet had asked us to do something grand, wouldn't you have done it? So why wouldn't you try to do something simple? And that made a lot of sense to me. So as much as it grossed me out, I went and bathed into the river seven times. And after the seventh time, I came up claim so that's kind of the story hallelujah praise jehovah well there you have it the miraculous healing of laban back to you in the studio thanks audrey praise god indeed it is always encouraging to see a miracle from god absolutely may god grant us more miracles maybe he could start with the miracle of jonathan actually letting us out on time today that would be miraculous 
And that does it for us at PVCC News, where we don't report fake news, we report the good news. Go ahead. It's not going to happen, Lily. So, okay, that's the story. Naaman gets leprosy, winds up going to Israel, and because he's such a big deal, he doesn't go to the prophet, he goes to the king of Israel first. The guy who's just been defeated by this warring nation. And when he goes to the king, the king freaks out and he's like, what are you trying to do? And, you know, you read, go back and read the story. You read it and you're like, man, switch to decaf or something, king. And then finally, the king tells him, go talk to the prophet, Elisha. He goes to talk to the prophet. Elisha doesn't even come out. Because part of Naaman's problem isn't just leprosy. It's a leprosy of the soul. And so he sends out his servant. Every, Every step along the way, it's been the people beneath Naaman who are the people who are Naaman's help. And they tell him to go do this, dip in the river of Jordan seven times. If you've been to the river of Jordan, it is a little bit gross. And the reason he doesn't want to do it is because he's got better rivers and better gods. He shows up to Israel in his tanks, the trappings of war of his day, chariots and money and power. And now he, he, you know, goes to the king. That doesn't work. He goes to the prophet. The prophet doesn't come out. You know, he gets a servant. And he's hoping somebody will do some kind of Kenneth Copeland healing of some kind. But instead he's told, go dip in a gross river. And the only reason he does it is because he's desperate. He is a successful person who's climbed to the very top. And now in the moment he finds himself staring at death, he discovers the thing that everybody eventually is going to learn. Death doesn't care about your status. It does not care about your rank, your salary. It's coming for us all. It is the great equalizer, sin and death. You know, it's easy to be hard on the ancient monks. This is one of the reasons we have the Protestant Reformation is because there was a spirit in the year 500 years ago that um, the people who were like, had a religious vocation like monks of prayer and worship and, and service, that those people were somehow better than the farmer or the blacksmith or whatever. And one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation happened is because we were saying, no, all work can be holy, all work can be a service to God, which is true. But do we not still have the same problem? Today, in so many of our jobs, are we not working for more than just a calling? Are we not working for some of us? To justify our existence for salvation. I was a college minister for many years. And one of the things I noticed, I'm just trying to, I'm I'm not throwing shade in any kind of college experience. Except I have noticed this. If you go to uh, like a a four-year school, like U of A or Harding or ACU or something like that. When I ask where do you go to school, you just say U of A. You know what? But if you went to or are going to another kind of school, a junior college, a community college, instead of answering that question directly, you tell a story. Well, see, now what's happening is, where do you go to school? See, now what's happening is my uncle is saving up money and I'm going to get some books and I'm going to get my gen eds out of the way. And I've noticed this watching it in college mixers as students interact over and over again because they are keenly aware of status. And I tell you that because you are too. The way you interact with the people you work with, the the way you work, the way you interact with the people around you. We all live 
in the land of earth. We want not just to be good, we want to be gooder. Not great English, but a good point. We want to be smarter, thinner, faster, stronger. We, look, we want to know how we're doing at life, so we look around and we compare. And this leads to a huge problem, one that makes us miserable. There's a Harvard, Harvard Business Review study done a few years ago that took 500 high-achievement professional, professionals and it interviewed them. And almost to a person in the interviews, every one of those professionals brought up someone they worked with that was doing better than them. And they made themselves, these very successful people made themselves miserable by constantly preparing themselves to other people. Nine out of ten office workers, according to this research, uh, suffer from professional envy of colleagues that they think have better paying, more glamorous jobs. More than two-thirds of us feel a form of professional jealousy towards friends and a third um, or a third of us envy a partner or spouse's job. Because if we don't constantly remind ourselves as followers of Jesus of the gospel, and not just something we think about on Sunday mornings, but what it means for our actual existence, we will try to earn some kind of merit or salvation through our work. And the best way to know how well the gospel is saturating your life is how do you view your job? Y'all know... Um, Mozart, you remember the, the guy who hated Mozart? Remember his name? I'm trying to see how cultured we are. Salieri, right? You've seen, there was a play, turned into a movie, but it was a real guy, right? And Salieri was a really good musician. And, and Salieri hated Mozart, even though he was a really good musician, because Mozart was just this once in a generation, more than once in a generation, once in 500 years kind of talents. And Salieri was crushed by being around him. He, he called himself, Salieri called himself the prince of mediocrity. What an interesting thing to say. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how millennials, my generation, has really taken off with the phrasing of changing the world. Uh, a couple of generations before them, it really started happening in the West. But my generation talked about changing the world a ton. So many books, 1.5 million books are in the U.S. Library of Congress about changing the world, making a dent in the universe. But underneath so much of that, I think, is the terror of being mediocre. We, we, we want to change the world. And by the way, these are good people. These are not, this is not selfishness. This is not entitlement. These people aren't lazy. They're talented, passionate, and caring. But they're looking for more than just a job. At our worst, we're looking for more than just a job or a cause. We're looking for redemption. We want our life to matter. But, and this is where you have to be honest with yourself. Is that all? Or do you kind of want your life to matter a little bit more than the people around you? Because that's the definition of the fear of being mediocre. We want to be bet. I like the way C.S. Lewis says this. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more than the ne- of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking. That's not true. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. 
One of the surprising things about the Bible that I think people need to pay attention to more is the kinds of people that God works through. I mean, if you're a church person, you probably heard these stories and maybe you haven't thought about them. But think about who God works through. God works through pagan kings and armies and rulers and centurions as a way of doing something in the world. And He often does this without saving them and making them a part of the people of God. And that brings me to the Tim Tebow problem that Christians in America have. I think Tim Tebow is a, <coughs> a great dude. <coughs> um, I, I'm grateful for the you know, way he's a man that young men can look up to. I think he's a good athlete and a mediocre NFL quarterback. <laughs> and I'm glad he's a Jesus follower. But what do you do when there's better quarterbacks out there that don't believe in Jesus? In, in Christian subculture that I grew up in, at least, every time there was somebody who had any kind of notoriety or public role who became a Christian, we celebrated that. Like it was a really big deal. But the flip side of this, and this is something that I think a bigger view of sin and a bigger view of grace can help us do, is that God is working through everybody. This is a, a theo- Christian tradition has said this for hundreds of years. There's a, a thing called common grace. Which every believer in Jesus believes that every single person is made in the image of God. Every single person needs to be treated with dignity and value. And that God has given common grace to everybody. Which should change how we interact with everybody. Not just believers in Jesus, but everybody. Because common grace is not just about forgiveness of sins. Common grace is about God gave everyone different gifts and talents. I'm, I'm taking this from Tim Keller, who was a pastor in Manhattan who recently passed away a couple of weeks ago. And Tim Keller, in 40 years of pastoring in Manhattan, he constantly affirmed communities outside of Christianity. So, and what the good things that they were doing in New York, like the Jewish community when they were serving their neighbors well, or the LGBT community, the way that they served the community around them. Tim Keller was constantly doing this um, to people who were working to help make New York City a better place. And here's why, and this is so profound, I hope you get this. Keller said this, if you could put that up, in the Christian story, the antagonist is not non-Christians. If your enemy has flesh and blood, you're not following your Christian story well. It's not non-Christians. It's the reality of sin, which as the gospel tells us, lies within us as well as within them. And so we are likely to be on firm footing if we make common ground with non-Christians to do work to serve the world. Christians' work with others should be marked by both humble cooperation and respectful provocation. The bad guy in the Christian story is not someone. This is Jesus 101. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And if your battle is against flesh and blood, you need to go deeper. It's the broken reality that Jesus called sin. And because of the common grace of God working through every person God has made, people outside of our tribe, outside of our community, or outside of our faith, because we believe we can see the image of God in everyone, then... This has got to change the way we work and interact with people who don't believe what we believe. So Keller goes on to say that people who understand the biblical doctrine the best ought to be at the ones who appreciate the work of non-Christians the most. Because if you're saved by grace alone, 
then your anxiety isn't about being a better father or mother than those people, or better artist or business person than other people. Our gospel-trained eyes can see the world differently. And we can see people that God has created everywhere we go and has given unique gifts that we can celebrate. When we don't like working with people who don't share the same values and ideals as we do, one of the ironies of that, it makes those values and ideals less influential in the rest of the world. And what's worse... We can't see the glory of God at work in the people around us that He's created. And this comes out a hundred different ways, but you already know this is true, and I can prove it with this one question. Would you rather have working on you a bad Christian dentist or a good non-Christian one? I, you know, we could take a vote, you could say what you wanted, but at the end of the day, when you get a cavity, I bet I know which way you really vote. This is to recognize the whole world is filled with the grace of God. You know, the thing about Salieri and Mozart is that he could have, he could have partnered. He was a very good musician. He could have been a part of Mozart's work. He could have appreciated the genius that was this once in, you know, many centuries, you know, prodigious thing. He could have enjoyed the finest music in the world right as it was being born. But he couldn't. Because he just couldn't live having anybody more gifted than him. In fact, in the end of the story, he blames God. He's so mad at God. Because God made somebody better than him. You remember at the end of that story what Naaman says over and over again? Every time Naaman refers to himself, after he gets delivered from leprosy, he refers to himself when he's talking to Elisha, when he's talking to everybody, as your servant. This guy goes in as a five-star general and leaves as a servant. He's healed of leprosy. He knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Lord, the one true God. But now he's got a problem because he knows he has to go back to his old job. The king of Syria is old and the king of Syria worships the God of Syria. And because he's old and feeble, when he goes to the temples of those gods, he, has to, he goes to bend down. And because Naaman is his right-hand man and he leans on him, literally leans on him, Naaman knows he has to bend down too. But Naaman doesn't worship those gods anymore. So here's Naaman's solution. And I think it's brilliant. And I want you to think about it for how you do your job this week. In verse 17 of chapter 5, Naaman says... Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth or land or dirt as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and then he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow, that, bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. So he's got to go back to his old job. He's got to back, go back into old temples that, he used, that used to mean something to him, but now it's different. And what does he do? He asks for as much dirt from Israel as he can carry. So that when he kneels, he kneels on that. It's his way of saying my responsibilities may be the same, but my relationship to them is different. 
Naaman will now serve his nation, but he will no longer worship it. He came in as a general and he left as a servant. You know, before that, before this moment, Naaman thought that there were certain places um, that were, you know, special and holy and um, certain places that weren't. He thought there was a God of every land, you know, every, go- every nation had its own God. And um, now all of a sudden he realizes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of everywhere. So he takes his dirt to work to remind him of that. And maybe you need that too. Because God is not a reality present at a church service and not at a laundromat. God is not uh, in the church building and not in the classroom. It's not about location. It's about orientation. It's not about where you are. It's about what you're aware of. I have noticed that in every job, there are competing storylines. Um, you have a lot of people trying to tell us what it means, try to tell you what it means to be successful. And in ministry, this is just mine, I'm constantly um, tempted to find my identity in comparing to other people who are doing what I do. In fact, my first five years of ministry, I was really bad at that. I thought because I worked at a church that was bigger than the friends that I graduated college was, that I was really, really good at ministry. Turns out that's not true. Um, the gospel keeps you in your job, able to force you to, or it keeps you, it gives you a new story to work with. So when, they, and this is complicated. I'm not drilling into details here because I think you have to have a bit of imagination. But think about this. When Naaman goes to Elisha and says, listen, I'm going to have to do this. I've got to, when I serve my king, I've got to bend down, take a knee in a pagan god's temple. And Elisha doesn't say, no, you've got to stand for something or you fall for anything. You know, Elisha tippins. That's a 90s country joke. So a very, very small group of people. Um, I, I think about Hannah Brooks or Caleb Carlin, who was here today. Both young adults who are wanting to work in the entertainment industry. And both are trying to figure out how do we do this, how do we navigate this world where we will have very little control over the kinds of work we do. We'll have, we can draw some lines, we can have some boundaries. What does it look like to do that? Denzel Washington is one of the most famous Jesus followers in Hollywood. He works above the line, they call it. Denzel Washington gets to say what shows he's going to be in and what shows he's not. But a lot of times, when you work under the line, you have to find a way to be faithful to King Jesus in what you do. And I I did the Hollywood because I think that that's a more um, striking example of something every single one of us have to do. How do you live in this world as a faithful follower of Jesus, working around sinners, aware of your own sin? How do you honor King Jesus in your work? Here's just one really good example. So uh, at the church I used to preach at in Abilene, one of the members there was Grant Boone. If you um, are a big golfer or you're like watching the U.S. Open this weekend, you probably know who Grant is. He, he's on TV. He's in like the whisper corner. I don't, I don't know if that's a thing, but I think I've heard him say that. Anyway, Grant Boone was on uh, the Golf Channel for over a decade. Kind of a big deal. Um, and he did that. 
The, the, he's also Pat Boone's nephew, if that helps make him more popular for y'all or whatever. Um, Grant Boone's a good dude, and he worked in a very cutthroat environment. And because it was such a cutthroat environment and because he had such a good job, after um, several a decade of working there, at one point, one of Grant's friends stabbed him in the back and got him fired and took his job. And, and because Grant, throughout his decade at working in the Golf Channel, there was not a lot of opportunity. Like people want to want you to be on there as a commentator, you know, talking about, you know, this putt's going to make it or not, not your testimony in Jesus Christ. And so because of that, working over 10 years at the Golf Channel, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for him to publicly live out his faith. And then he got fired for something that he was wrongly accused for and someone else got his job. And everybody internally knew he had been wrongly treated. After 10 years of just good work with integrity, character, and talent, everything kind of stops and turns at Grant. And Grant, in this moment where everyone's paying attention, forgives his friend. And later, when I asked him about it, he said this. I'd get fired every day if it meant having the chance to forgive. Because his moment of being, stepping forward and being clearly a follower of Jesus took 10 years to get there. And when it happened, everybody was paying attention. And the reason he was able to do that is because he wasn't playing the same game his friends were. He wasn't kneeling on the same dirt. And this is where we can learn from Naaman today. Because the idols of his day are just as real and worshipped as our day. We are just as hungry to justify ourselves by what, how much we make or how much status our job gives us. But the gospel is giving us another story to work with. So what does it look like to bring your own dirt to work? I'm serious. I, I, here's some ideas. Maybe print off a, a, a verse and put it with you in, in your work truck or in your office or cubicle. Or maybe it's a quote or, or maybe what, whatever it is, maybe it's just a visual reminder of who God says you are and who God is. Regardless of whether you are on the fast track in your career or someone else's fast track is passing you by. Regardless of promotions or bonuses or attaboys or girls, It is the reminder of who we are really working for and why. So let's go to work. And let's bring our own dirt.